Podcast and I'm Robert Wright of Non Zero Podcast. So this must mean that it's another high synergy episode of the collaborative American Prestige Non Zero Podcast, which happens every couple of months or so, notwithstanding. These really should be national holidays. They, they, really they should. They should. People should consider them. I've given the time to consider them. There's talk in on Capitol Hill about that, but I don't want to say anything too soon. No, I mean, fair I, enough. Um, so we've only done three of these and they're only every two months. And yet the very first one involved discussion of, uh, Gaza. And that means, I guess that this war is heading into its fifth month right about now. Right. Yeah. Wild. Uh, yeah. That terrible. Correct. Whoa. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whoa. <laughs> So I guess the levity portion of our podcast is ended. It's starting. Well, well Bob, like, I actually did, was have that a premature? Should we go ahead? No, let's return to levity. Go ahead. Let's have uh, a little more banter. No, this, yeah, this is banter. not levity. This is this is this is related to that because you've done much more than uh, most people have have like talked to people from quote unquote both sides. So I was just wondering, like, what is your assessment of of both both sides' arguments? You know, you've talked to Israeli liberals. You've talked to you know people. Uh, on on the uh, on the other side of a of a fight that you know one might not seem might not seem to have another side. So I was just wondering if we had any any conclusions or anything interesting to have drawn from that. Yeah, I just actually aired something with Russ Roberts, who's well known for his econ talk podcast, but is also president of a small college in Jerusalem. Now he's been living in Israel a few years. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean. You know, sadly, in general, when I look at things like this, I find that people on both sides are behaving the way human beings behave. Um, I mean, you know, I've, I've long said that Israel, as as unwise as I think so much of its policy is in terms of its own long term security, even um, they they act no more crazily than we acted after 9-11. Uh, you know, I mean, when you look at their situation, uh, certainly when you look at October 7th, I mean, you know, if you if you look at how crazy we were after, you know, launched God knows how many wars in response to 3000 people dying um, and you correct for everything like the size of Israel, how threatened it feels rightly or wrongly and so on, it, it's it's kind of it's kind of proportional to what we did after 9-11 in a certain sense. I mean, as grim as that sounds, I still, I mean, I do, I do have a lot of times of just wondering why almost no one in Israel seems to be saying, um, folks, we may be, you know, making things much worse for ourselves in the long run, making more of the world hate us, creating a new generation of terrorists and so on. But, I mean, I, I think they just think they're going to to cleanse the region and take it over and that the world will forget as the world has forgotten uh, many things at many times. It's not it's not to me right. that wild a position. You know, it seems to be like this is what the uh, what is the Gush Emonim and the Likud, the right wing of the Likud, which is now just right wing, have wanted for decades at this point. So that that seems pretty 
legible to me and they'll they think the world already hates jews and the world's going to continue to hate Jews. that that is i think a big factor is is the feeling in israel that whether you think of it as hatred of jews or hatred of israel or hatred of zionism that it's like this universal constant can't get worse nothing they do will make it worse i mean at the same time people say there is a rise in anti-semitic acts around the world in response to what they're doing in Gaza. And I guess the way they'd parse that is to say, well, that's just latent anti-Semitism being expressed. I'd still say bigotry in general is better latent than expressed. So if you're doing things that are increasing the amount of expression, that's one reason to reconsider it. But I, I absolutely, I've long thought that this was an important ingredient of Israel's policy. The idea that they're going to hate us no matter what we do, so we just we have to act as tough as we think is necessary. The uh, the idea that you're you're just going to cleanse. I mean, I, I agree, Danny. You're right, but that's that's a, the prominence of the the Israeli right. What's interesting to me is th- what's left of the Israeli left or even left of center that seems to be just in denial about who is running the country. Like you, you just had. Uh, an event a few days ago where over a dozen cabinet ministers, and not just from the fringe parties, from Likud, which is the mainstream conservative party, attending an event calling for the ethnic cleansing and reoccupation, resettlement of Gaza. And the reaction to this from from people, at least on social media, which is you know the only place that I, I guess I uh, encounter any reaction, is... Uh, well, these guys are just on the fringe. They're they're in the cabinet. They're running the country. Like, how does that work? How do you imagine that they're just uh, fringe figures who can be dismissed? And I don't know, Bob, if you've had those conversations with uh, with people and, and what the response is. I, I haven't asked that exact question. I think it's a little bit like us and Trump. Like when Trump is president, you want to say to the world, well, this isn't like really, this is just Trump. He'll be gone and then we'll be back to the real America. But of course, he came to power through an electoral process, and he is, in fact, America, so long as he's in, in office. And you got to live with that fact. He reflects something real that's going on in America. But, you know, you always would rather, if, you know, if you if you view the person, whether it's Trump or Bibi, with utter disdain and contempt, you'd rather think they're not characteristic of your polity. Uh, but they kind of are. I mean, Bibi's been in power for most of two decades. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the central figure of Israeli politics in this century so far. And and yeah, he's he's moved uh, in that time to save his own skin further and further right. Uh, but but he's been comfortable doing that. And he it's worked. The political calculation that if I embrace these, you know, ever more fringe right parties, it will enable me to retain power because that's where the electorate is going has been correct. I mean, he's he's held on to power all this time. No, and it's gotten more and more extreme in terms of who's who's in his cabinet. Uh, that's that's a trend. Lit- um, I mean, literally convicted terrorists at this point are in the cabinet. I mean, it's, well, the thing it's that blows to... me away is that that the guy had uh, had had a portrait of Baruch Goldstein on his wall until a couple of years ago. He decided if he was going to get into politics, that was probably a bad look. A, a guy who who slaughtered dozens of, of Palestinians in a mosque with a submachine gun. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it's 
I, I mean, I, 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 Danny, I agree on the on the ethnic cleansing thing. It does seem to me that that's the only kind of that's the only way to think of this as a, a really coherent policy. What they're doing now is if they uh, envision they the culmination it. as ethnic cleansing. There's no other obviously happy ending. I mean. I mean, from the their maps, point of view, I mean, obviously, ethnic is not a happy ending, but I mean, from Israel's strategic point of view, and I'm not even sure ethnic cleansing uh, makes the world uh, a great place for them. That's another question. Uh, and I don't know how many people are thinking about this. I think a lot of people in Israel are not really thinking clearly about the outcome. They're still thinking we're going to eliminate Hamas somehow, I guess. I, I mean, is that what Israeli liberals you talk to say? Like, that's absurd. It's not even worth talking at that point. Like you're not in the same reality. Then you're not living in reality. If that if that is your claim, then what are you even no. doing? But but I think if they did something <laughs> like, and this could happen any moment through some big intelligence breakthrough, I guess. If they killed like uh, Sinwar, the the political leader of Hamas in Gaza, and or killed this uh, the military leader Mohammed Daif or whatever his name is, you know, BB. Of course, BB doesn't want the war to end, so BB not, might not do this, but he could plausibly say at that point, okay, you feel satisfied and probably enough of the Israeli people would say, yes, you know, this was that's the not top the of Hamas and we eliminated. <laughs> but that's so obviously not the, I mean, this is like the culmination of a 50 year or a hundred year project, depending on how far you want to go. You know, this is why these conversations always seem so wild yeah. to me. Well, it's, it, they, they don't, it's not like a secret, you know, it's, it, this is what's always so funny. People are very clear about the intentions. They want greater Israel. Some of which includes to the east of uh, the Jordan, uh, you know, to the east of the of the of the West Bank, even. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, they say that. It, and if well, you I go mean, to Israel, there are people like building menorahs for the third temple. Uh, it's not exactly a secret, which is why some of these conversations just always feel so strange. It's like they're in a, a, a reality that's not operative and hasn't been for a long time. Um. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't. I don't think the sentiment, that sentiment is characteristic of most Israelis. But I think most Israelis, if Gaza could, from their point of view, suddenly become not a security problem, they'd be like, whatever, we don't have to occupy it. Uh, but that's fantasy land. That's not real. That's not a real. Well, that's another question. I, I just no. mean, I think the quest for to, to uh, populate all of historic Palestine is, is is per se not necessarily a mainstream thing in Israel. But. You know, I I don't know. I mean, there there is uh, I mean, a couple of things are happening now that I guess could bring this uh, to an end. One is uh, apparently the Biden administration is dispatching uh, Bill Burns. That's still the idea, right? To talk about and you know, he's, uh, yeah, he, he's been there. He was there. He was in Paris earlier this week. Talking okay, to earlier this week. But the conversation oh. is ongoing, right? They supposedly are yeah. making a significant uh, push for a long ceasefire that they hope could lead to an actual negotiate into the war. And he, and here's, listen, I've got a newsflash. This, this blew my mind when I read this. This is uh, from NBC News. There's been a major insight that has dawned in the White House, apparently, about things superpowers can do. Listen to this. Dateline Washington. The Biden administration is discussing using weaponry sales to Israel as leverage, leverage, okay, Hadn't occurred to me. You can you if you're giving them all the weapons, you might have some leverage. So anyway, these people in the White that's, House is way ahead of me. They're way ahead of me. Yeah. This is stunning. Wow. To convince the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to heed longstanding U.S. calls to scale back its military assault in the Gaza Strip, 
according to three current U.S. officials and one former U.S. official. I don't know if this is an intentional leak, and, and maybe this is the first tentative step toward actually doing this. It's kind of advertising to Israel that they might, but uh, it's something, I guess. Um, Do you think it's a leak for, for Israel, or is it a leak for the domestic well, it, it could Well, it could well be that. It, it's, it's so weird that they think, the administration seems to think that we'll be impressed if they say, well, we asked BB politely and he said no, so we're really trying. No, that doesn't make you look good. That makes you look like a wimp, you know? I mean, but they do that a lot, right? That's their line. Uh, well, we keep uh, well I mean, the new, the new line is they're heartbroken. I saw this now. This is like every spokesperson for the administration this week has been at pains to talk about how Biden is heartbroken by what's happening in Gaza. And that word, that specific word is... Uh, what they seem to be using. So yeah, we've gone from like uh, just kind of callously questioning whether the, the the death toll, the casualty count was even accurate uh, to, oh, you know, we're really trying to talk to these guys and tell the Israelis to, to kind of tone things down. But they're just, you know, we're just, it's an ongoing conversation uh, with our, with our partner here. And now we've gone from that to, uh, you know, every other day, it seems like there's another, story in Axios or some other, you know, access journalism outlet about how frustrated Biden is with with Netanyahu. And and that's, you know, we've added now the heartbreak to that. And I think it's all for for domestic consumption, really. Well, I don't I don't think it's going to work. Uh, I mean, what do you think about the way this plays out in the election? I mean, the, the standard critique is like, you know, Biden is using these decades old reflexes about appeasing the Israel lobby. Of course, there is also this line that he just has this heartfelt special thing about Israel. Could be. He certainly likes to think of himself as someone with empathy. And I think that was uh, triggered on October 7th. But anyway, there's the, one theory is like he's he's kind of he's paying attention to forces that are real and important in American politics for sure. But he just doesn't quite understand that, you know, when you run for election, you need all these young, enthusiastic volunteers, for one thing, and uh, you may not get them this time around because of his Gaza policy, not to mention the concerted effort in some swing states uh, by, uh, you know, Arab Americans uh, to uh, to come up with, I think, maybe some kind of alternative candidate even. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I, I think the reflex is the political reflex is there not just from Biden, from from the entire, you know, uh, gerontocratic leadership of the Democratic Party to, to support Israel. But it appeals to voters who have already decided they're not going to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, I think that any any inroads that he could make would be for people who aren't going to vote for him for a variety of other reasons. And in, in the meantime, he he's losing, uh, losing young people, losing Arab American voters, which could be key. I think also, it just kind of this this message that they're delivering now after you know coming to it, uh, you know, four months into the war of helplessness, basically of like we're we're trying, we're talking, and he's we're really frustrated, but there's nothing we can do. Yeah, I think it plays into this image of of Biden as basically incompetent, which which feeds he's too old for the job. And there's a whole like story that's developed around that that I don't I don't think helps him politically. 
So, Danny, were were people were your friends going to vote for Biden in the first place? Um, were my friends going to vote for Biden in the first place? Are you talking about the lefty, the, the left, dirtbag the left, left, the younger um, than me left left? Um, I mean, probably if they voted right, they weren't going to vote mm -hmm. for RFK. They probably weren't going to uh, invite Bernie Sanders. I don't think they would have made a. Um, I don't think they would have made an electoral difference. And most of them live in the coastal elite cities anyway. I mean, it's just like he's so obviously decrepit and it's strange that people don't talk about it. It's just weird. It's like everyone knows it. It's very weird. And it just shows the weakness of the party that they don't have anyone else. The parties right now are both like very weak. Where, I think that, where are the Dean there. Phillips heads? Where, yeah, where on, are the man. Dean Phillips like, heads? Like, Phillips? That guy that guy's a democratic version of Ramaswamy. And and in case you're wondering about his views on Israel, uh, William Ackman donated a million dollars to his super PAC. Uh, so I'm guessing he was vetted on that uh, issue. He, he's a, he's a thoroughgoing hawk. Uh, I, I mean, he wants to sound uh, creative and interesting enough to, to say the occasional non hawkish thing, but his instincts are like, you know, we should have fought Russia over Ukraine in 2014, that kind of thing. Uh, but, but uh, over Crimea, over Crimea. But Bob, what, what do you, I mean, like what's interesting to me about this moment is like the, the lack of, of almost political interest among the young. It's just like the, the nihilism, you know, is, is more than anything. Like there's just no sense that things are going to get better for people under 40. Mm -hmm. And there's no belief, like no one's listening to any of the promises. No one believes that Biden's going to cancel student debt. No one believes that they're going to stop these large asset management firms from buying huge amounts of property, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like everything's fucked and people have accepted that. It, it feels like what the late seventies probably felt like. Um, but the context is very different from the late 1970s. I just think things are going to yeah. get worse. Now, and that's the late what 70s think. weren't like, I mean, young people today are hopeless in a way that people weren't in the late 70s. The, the late 70s, you were you were entering a period of just kind of disinterest, relative right. disinterest well, you could buy college a home. campuses. You could have a family, you know, like these are things that are out of reach of many people who are like college right. graduates, you know, like quote unquote successful people. And that's pretty new in, in modern American history. I think in post 45 American history, there's yeah. been periods like that before, but not in the modern era. No. And I mean, one thing about the current crisis is it has given young people something to rally around um, and in a more organized way than I've seen. I mean, just thinking about my daughters, you know, and their their lefty friends, um, you know, there's something in the air. Uh I don't know where exactly it's going to lead. I, I, you know, I wish that somehow, you know, rather than Dean Phillips or in addition to Dean Phillips, we somehow had some somewhat better known establishment Democratic figure who's at least a little to the left of Biden on this issue, like a Tim Kaine or somebody, right, who could just who would be taken seriously. I, I mean, I think anybody remotely like Tim Kaine would beat Biden in an actual, you know, nom nominating contest. Uh, first of all, but the kind of pressure he'd put on on this issue would lead to kind of a healthy, maybe some healthy debate. Um, I mean, that's the thing. I think they just don't feel I mean, maybe they're starting to get wise to it because he's getting protested at every event, which also, you know, is not particularly con conducive to political success. But but I think they they still don't really feel the the pressure coming from uh, people who want a ceasefire and are, are 
uh, you know, concerned about what's happening. And they're not imagining the pressure on the other side. I, th I think, Danny, you're right. It's not about voters. These days, the, uh, the most ardently pro-Israel voters are in the Republican Party, the evangelicals. But there's a whole infrastructure associated with the Democratic Party of uh, donors and institutions that will slap you on the wrist if you say the wrong thing about Israel, like uh, the Anti-Defamation League and these think tanks that will be quoted in the, you know, like Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It'll get quoted in The New York Times saying you didn't retaliate hard enough against Iran or whatever. And uh, the the uh, and you deserted the, you know, there is a real thing there that he's not hallucinating about. It's just that. And, and I honestly don't know which is stronger. I think he's kind of screwed. I, I don't think there's some kind of obvious solution to his political problems. Now, I think somebody like Tim Kaine could finesse it. Uh, and, and look, it wouldn't be hard to, to introduce a pro-peace message right now in discourse with Biden without being dismissed as a crank and saying, use our leverage, let's get it done, you know? But anyway wasn't meant to be there's there's no all of the everyone this side of Marianne Williams and I don't even know what her her views are or even if her last name is Williams or Williamson but um, well, we're her foreign policy team Bob so tread are, carefully are you? okay so, so <laughs> she is she reliably left maybe I'll maybe I'll vote nah, for her, but... she's she is an artifact of the 70s new age in California more than mm -hmm. anything right I mean no here's here's what I find interesting gentlemen um, I think we are actually returning to a, a pre-World War II moment where the, um, the 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 spectrum of right and left really doesn't make sense. Like, it really doesn't make sense for most of American history. You know, you have the progressives, you have the populists. The progressives have a left-wing element. They have a right-wing element. The populists, similarly. You have these different constellations of power that don't really relate to left and right-wing, which are very much formed in the 19th century in Europe. And so I think this is a, a lot of our political vocabulary is atavistic, isn't actually really situated to understand what's going on. So I think one, one thing that's been frustrating to me is I think a lot of the political uh, discussion has been really weak recently. I think if, if you compared what's been uh, the, the type of conversations that are happening now to what was happening in the, you know, let's say 1950s to 1990s, it, it's much worse because the language of left right made more sense when there were self-consciously a conservative movement and a liberal movement, both of which, by the way, are really artifacts of the 1940s and not before. So I think there's like a lot of problem with problems with just how we even talk about politics. Like Marianne Williamson, to describe her as left is not even really correct. It's a, like a totally different constellation from which she emerges. And the same is true, I think, for a lot of the new politics that are emerging right now. Hmm. Uh. Also, I mean, how many people are there on this thing that you will eventually hope to call the left, I guess, if it coalesces? Um, I mean, like America, like never had very powerful labor unions. Right. So like this is the problem with the American left mm -hmm. is that it it throughout it throughout its history. It wasn't like the European left where there was like, you know, a social democratic party with its own institutions. Mm -hmm. So the American left, due to the various peculiarities of American politics, is like scattered. So that question is almost it's not even answerable. Again, mm -hmm. also, the left doesn't really make sense in the American context because we have these two gigantic parties that basically serve as a constellation, a weak 
coming together of interest groups. And the Republican Party is going nuts right now because the you know the three tiered uh, elements of fusionism are obviously coming apart. So no one knows what that's going to be. And the Democratic Party has basically turned into a corporately financed party of what you might say are like center left liberal elites, which don't really have an organic base in any real movement. Meanwhile, unions are kind of all over the place because they're run by these like boomers and older Gen X people who emerge from a very different political context that doesn't relate uh, to today. So we don't even have like a good understanding to say like what is what even is a left in America? It doesn't make sense. You know, I before I say something about that, uh, I should make a public service announcement. At some point, uh, the public part of this podcast will come to an end. Uh, you'll hear some voiceover or something. We don't know when it's going to be. We leave these decisions to our highly paid uh, media strategists. <laughs> but um, at that point, anyone who's a paid subscriber to either the American Prestige or the Non-Zero Newsletter uh, will be able to hear the whole thing. They may not even notice it happening because they may have already set up their special podcast feed that includes all the bonus podcast content, uh, not to mention any bonus uh, written content. Um, so that's my, uh, I assume I have your full support on that. Of course. Uh, uh, of course. And people should should know we still have the, the discounts going. So if you're subscribed so, to yeah. one, you can get, uh, uh, get, a, get a discount yeah. for subscribing to the other. Oh, yeah. And Bob, that, you know, we're partially at the nation now, right? Our free episodes, most of them go up at the nation. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're yeah. doing real media synergy. Pretty soon you're getting, you're yeah. not even going to be returning my emails. <laughs> yeah. We're at the epicenter. Oh, right. straight, straight to trash. I'm going to turn on M MSNBC <laughs> and it's going to be like, oh, shit. No wonder they didn't return my emails. Yeah, we're the new Chris, Chris Hayes. Hayes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, but hey, he's feeling his oats on this issue. What has I he had, been saying on this issue? I haven't been paying attention. Oh, there have been some memorable rants. I mean, I, I had some Twitter exchanges with him on Ukraine where uh, we had a stark disagreement. I was too radical for him. But um, but no, on this issue, uh, look, I mean, it's interesting, the contrast between the two, right? Like Ukraine and this. It's like <laughs> there's a lot of people who either weren't questioning. And, and look, they're complicated and they're very different. Uh, but are I, they? I, just, no, I they feel are, a lot less alone on this, which um, which leads me. I mean, I wasn't against arming Ukraine. I just had a bunch of questions that the ask. I was against got it me in trouble. Yeah. And everything I predicted came true. What, what are people just going to say? Listen, oh, to man, Bessner. listen, listen to Bessner. He, he's always have a right. Contest. <laughs> we, we should have a contest. 14 months ago, I had a piece in The Washington Post saying, you know, to some extent, echoing Mark Milley saying, look, now is the time to cut a deal. Things aren't going to get better on the battlefield. Just Ukrainians are going to die. We're going to waste money. Exactly what has happened. I rest my case. So um, with, with all due respect for your own questions, Dan. Nostradamus um, <laughs> is over here. But, but anyway, on the left thing, look, I, 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 I applaud your devotion uh, to the left, and I hope something meaningful coalesces. It already has. I mean, you're seeing this energy in the streets. That's great. But I don't think the salvation of American foreign policy can wait for like a true left left majority in America. That just takes too long. And I think you have to somehow get a message of, of sanity out, you know, of what like a sane foreign policy would be out to. So others. I, 
I, okay, so this is where my Marxism comes in. I think that's an ideological project that could per, depends on persuading people, and I don't think that's going to have any effect in the long term. I think you actually have to attack the sinews of the empire itself, right? You actually just have to be very, very specific about closing bases. You have to be very, very specific about reducing the budget. Everyone in D.C., the blob is not going to change. They're so ideologically bought into the project that they literally can't change. Like their their appetizer orders in Alexandria depend on them basically buying into something. So you need to form some sort of very directed political coalition that is very, very conscious about attacking the, the needle points of empire, the sort of hinge points, not needle points, the hinge points of, of the empire. Otherwise, nothing's going to change. No minds are going to change. That is not the key, in my opinion, to salvation. And if I was taking off my political hat and putting on my analyst hat, that's not going to happen. I think that the, 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 the machine of empire is basically running on autopilot at this point. I think so that's what, what the last 20 years have demonstrated. So Derek, do you, uh, are, are you, are you with Danny? You're, you're like, uh, we can't see your hands. You're making Molotov cocktails even as we speak. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in my, uh, I'm in my, uh, <laughs> uh my militant bunker, uh, doing, doing, uh, the work now i mean i i i have a hard time imagining that you're going to persuade anybody and i don't know if it's because i've given up on persuasion period or if it's because i just don't think there's any way to to persuade the leadership of a political party whose opinions about the world all calcified like 20 30 years ago and this is you know again i i, I feel like i've probably spent too much time talking about the gerontocracy but like what are you going to say to nancy pelosi or joe biden uh or you know any of their acolytes even somebody a bit younger like like a anthony blinken who came through this uh kind of you know brainwashing apparatus and uh, whose whole career has depended upon hewing to the the beliefs that that people like Biden formed in the 1980s, what are you going to say to them to convince them that the world doesn't work the way they think it works? And just to two finger Derek very quickly, I know, Bob, you like psychology. Like, I, I know one of the most robust, I mean, who knows what that means after the replication crisis, <laughs> but a, a very robust finding in psychology is that uh, political opinions actually get calcified rel relatively early in life. Like, I remember I was doing for my first book, I, I was, you know, uh, a guy who came through the Weimar Republic and it really shaped his politics. And I was researching, if I recall correctly, the social psychology. And like by 30, it's like most of your political opinions are are pretty, pretty in there. So it, it's it's very difficult psychologically, from what I understand, to persuade people. Yeah, I mean, I do think a, a kind of point of entry is how completely distorted the narrative about American foreign policy and our actual history is. I mean, recent history. And like I've gotten a number of in, in my newsletter, a number of, you know, on our Friday kind of issue, um, a number of lead items out of just explaining to people what the truth is, what, what, how, you know, this idea that Hamas got control of Gaza by staging a coup uh, after they won an election, which obviously makes no sense. If you win an election, you don't need to stage a coup. What really happened? Well, and then they find out what really happened is much more complicated. It involved Hamas saying, okay, we're we're fine with, you know, we'll, we'll talk, two-state solution, you name it, blah, 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 and us saying that's not enough. Um, and the history of the Houthis and everything, um, I mean, people are 
there are some people who just hadn't thought much about foreign policy. You're kind of blown away when they hear what the actual truth is. At the public level, for sure. The public doesn't matter, though. Yeah. I mean, well, like, this well, is what, what is my entire scholarly plan? career is dedicated to studying so, is why the public doesn't matter in foreign policy. And it's been it's a trend going back about 100 years. And there's been like institutions and a lot of norms. Not It's mostly institutions created to make sure the public doesn't matter. It just doesn't. It does not affect foreign policy. But so what is your actual plan? Are I, you just uh, resigned to hopelessness? I, I think I don't I don't have a plan. I mean, this is this is uh, 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 absolutely no disrespect at all meant, but this is like the question that you, the the liberal always asks of the leftists is like, how do we get to your mm -hmm. utopian vision? And I think the problem is no one knows how this is. the. I mean, and ultimately what I really think is that <laughs> it would be very difficult given the last century of history. I think that and I could get into why I've, I might have talked about this with you before, but I think like. After roughly World War One, it was very, very difficult to put the machine to, to 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 move the battleship in a different direction for a variety of reasons. You know, like if you're looking at this from a macro historical perspective, once workers fought each other in World War One, it was it was it was almost all over. Once the revolution happened in Russia, not a great situation for for global communism or global socialism. So I think that we've been on a path-dependent uh, journey for a while now. Not totally. There's always contingencies, but uh, the contingencies didn't work out in behavior. Uh, sorry, in 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 um, uh, in the left's favor. Hmm. You're getting me kind of bummed out here, man. <laughs> it's I, just I, truth, you know. It's just like what uh, a great historian once said to me, uh, Martin Jay, uh, great great historian, actually a liberal who studied the left. He said to me, one person's pessimism is another person's realism.